You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Time to start the Republican National Convention virtually. Plus, to joy back on Capitol Hill, I'll bring you an interview with Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, a Democrat from Houston, and an all-star panel. All week long, we'll be checking in with the Trump re-election campaign tomorrow, an interview with Donald Trump Jr. But we kick things off on this virtual I'm so sick of it. The virtual Republican National Convention with Tim Murtaugh. He is director of communications for the president's re-election campaign. Tim, happy convention week. Where are you and how, is, how are you guys going to play things differently than Democrats from a stylistic standpoint with this virtual stuff? Looks like we do not have. I'm sorry. I'm hey, no worries, Tim. Sorry. He's there. Tim, how are yeah, you? I'm I'm doing well. I'm speaking to you uh, from Arlington County, Virginia, on the other side of the Potomac River from our nation's capital. And uh, I would say that uh, the, stylistically and thematically, I, I think our our convention is going to be radically different from the from the Democrats, if you uh, forgive the use of that word, uh, <laughs> derivative being radical. On the in the case of their convention, uh, we saw four nights of really a dark and gloomy projection of what the United States is like. And uh, really, if you listen to them tell the story, it's a wonder why anyone would want to live in the United States. And uh, they really didn't pay any attention to the fact that. If things are so bad in this country as they laid them out, then what are they what are they doing having a nominee who's been in Washington elected office for 47 years? Uh, and I think if you look at our convention, it's going to be an optimistic and forward-looking, uh, bright look at America, uh, where we've come from and, and where we're going, and, and President Trump's accomplishments. You know, President Trump uh, is an unapologetic patriot. He loves this country. He thinks it's the greatest country that the world has ever known. And that is the message that we're going to be broadcasting. We'll be hearing from a lot of regular people, normal Americans whose lives have improved because of the president's policies. Uh, and we also, of course, reserve the right to draw a contrast between President Trump and his record and Joe Biden and his record. 
You know, as we play this out, and yesterday uh, when I was talking to sources in the administration as it relates to cutting through regulatory red tape on FDA approval for things like convalescent plasma and the scientific community and the ongoing push to find a vaccine, you've got really two tracks. You've got so many Americans right now, Tim, concerned about getting their kids back to school, getting their job, keeping their jobs, and then, of course, the health concerns, the very real health concerns. How is the convention going to balance both of them and still stick with optimism? Because, as you know, it's a really anxious time for many, many Americans of all different political stripes. And I understand that, and I think the president understands that. But I, I think, look, it, it, the president views that we can be safe and still move ahead. We can be safe and have our economy reopen. We can be safe and have our schools reopen. And uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats really cast this as an either-or situa- situation. Either we can be safe or we can have our economy and the schools open. And we just reject that kind of thinking. We think you can do both at the same time. And I think you saw that reflected uh, last night on the ABC interview that Joe yeah. Biden and, and Kamala Harris uh, sat through. And you see Joe Biden saying that he would shut down the economy again, and, you know, if certain doctors told him to do that. Look, we're just coming out of the coronavirus uh, economic downturn. We've seen the, the last three months of record job creation. And Joe Biden says, look, if they told me to, I'd shut it down again. And we know that, you know, you could listen to other health experts who would tell you that a prolonged economic downturn or a shutting down of the entire national economy, as Joe Biden said he would consider doing, that comes with its own very serious health risks uh, above and beyond what the coronavirus would cause. And so we do not look at it as an either-or situation. We think that we can be safe and continue down the path of reopening. And I think that the president's policies and the, the rebirth of the economy is proving that. I got two more questions for you. Tim Murtall's on two more topics for you. T- Tim Murtall's on the line. He's the communications director for the president's re-election campaign. We're very uh, grateful to have him share some of his busy schedule and time with us. The, 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 uh, this is the issue of law and order, because as I look at the crosstabs, and we saw the Wall Street Journal crosstab polls where the president's still leading against Biden on the economy, despite trailing nationally. But you can't electorally, he's within striking distant, distance of all the battleground states. But on the issue of law and order, how crucial of that? How crucial of a role is that going to play, Tim Murtal, to to winning back some of the suburban districts? And how do you how do you use that issue of law and order? Because uh, I hear that that's going to be a really important issue, especially in swing districts. It, it is. It's going to be an important issue. And I think whether you live in the suburbs or if you live in the cities or even if you live in a rural area, what what you've seen, what Americans have seen on television coming out of very many of our major cities uh, is not a pretty picture. It's not things that uh, people think about as America. We don't think about our cities being on fire and, and, and looting and, and burning and uh, just random acts of violence. We don't we don't like we, Americans don't like to see that. And I think the point has to be made and made strongly that the cities in which these incidents are happening have been under uh, one-party Democrat control for decades and almost a century in some of the cases. And so I think there is a clear delineation. You, know, you saw Joe Biden, uh, when asked a question uh, of, by a liberal activist, would can we all agree that you would redirect police funding to other areas of government? Joe Biden said, yes, absolutely. We also know that during his time as vice president in the eight years during the Obama administration, federal funding 
lobbying for state and local law enforcement fell. It has risen under President Trump, precipitously rising. And so uh, I think there is a clear delineation. President Trump, just like the rest of us, we honor and respect the First Amendment and the rights of people to protest peacefully. It's when that line is crossed. And I think uh, I think that you see this in the reaction by the law enforcement community uh, that they know well, whose side uh, which one of these two candidates is on. One after another, the police unions are endorsing President Trump over Joe Biden. It's because they know that Joe Biden has turned his back on them. Joe Biden, given every chance, has sided with the rioters and made excuses for the rioters against the interests of law-abiding citizens and people who live, whether it's in the suburbs or in the cities or anywhere else, that don't want to see that kind of lawlessness. And I think uh, it's going to be remarkable. And tonight, uh, Senator Tim Scott, a Republican from South Carolina, he's giving uh, one of the primetime addresses. And you can follow that along uh, on Bloomberg Television and radio. He, of course, is a Republican from South Carolina. All right. On the issue of foreign policy, I was really surprised that foreign policy didn't really come up. I mean, even though there were former secretaries of state that spoke at last week's convention, China was not really front and center. And it's the one area well, where, quite honestly, Republicans and Democrats on the Hill have been pushing for. And um, But I, I would take it, especially with Secretary Pompeo speaking in Israel, that foreign policy is, is going to be front and center, especially this issue with China. Oh, you bet we're going to talk about China this week, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and we're going to talk about it uh, in, the, in the scope of Joe Biden and China. Joe Biden, I'm not surprised he didn't want to talk about it at his convention because he's got a decades-long career of appeasing China and promoting China's interests. He argued for a most favored nation status for China, and he paved the way for them to be admitted to the World Trade Organization. That led to the loss of three and a half million American jobs. And Biden has never taken China seriously as an economic threat to the United States. To this day, he does not. I mean, everyone's seen the videotape of him on the campaign trail this cycle laughing about it, saying, what, China's going to eat our lunch? Come on, man. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not bad folks, but they're not a threat. I mean, seriously, China is our greatest economic rival on the face of the planet today, and Joe Biden does not take it seriously, even in the coronavirus situation. Everyone knows China lied to us, lied to the rest of the world. And everyone also knows that the World Health Organization helped them lie to the world. And what's Joe Biden's response to that? He doesn't want the president to restrict travel from China at the very beginning, as he did to save American lives during the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, he doesn't want the president to mention that it's the Chinese virus and that it came from the Wuhan province of China. And he wants to continue sending taxpayer money to the WHO, which helped China lie to us and put us behind the ball in responding to the coronavirus outbreak. So we are not surprised, even in the least, that Joe Biden didn't want to talk about China or other aspects of foreign policy. Remember Robert Gates, uh, the former defense secretary under Obama and Biden, said that Joe Biden has been wrong on every foreign policy call for the last four decades. So if I were old Joe, I guess I wouldn't talk about it either. Tim Mertzall, <laughs> kicking off our virtual convention, Republican Convention Week. Thank you, Tim, for uh, for calling in and giving us a preview. And China, you just heard it right there, folks. I've been saying it all day on Bloomberg TV. China's going to be front and center on the geopolitical front for this for this convention. More next. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Special coverage, cross-platform, 
headed up, of course, by the David Weston on Bloomberg Television and on Bloomberg Radio. I'm headed to the White House this evening for our coverage. Now we switch gears. Let's go back to the Democrats. Earlier today, I spoke with Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee about what she's expecting from the Republican National Convention. The progressive from Houston had a lot to say. Take a listen. Uh, Last week, of course, you heard from people who know how to govern. You heard from people who recognize that the nation is changing. It's enormously diverse, regionally diverse, multicultural. And we spoke with voices to those individuals. We didn't try to reframe America in our image. We listened to the voices of Americans. That's what the Biden-Harris team represents. I think the challenges that we will have in the upcoming uh, convention And might I just indicate that the Gulf Coast, as you well know, in this week is facing dual hurricanes on top of a COVID-19 pandemic. And I express my concern for my neighbors in Louisiana and, of course, my fellow Texans as we get prepared. You have to know how to govern. What we'll hear are a lot of words from this convention about uh, how powerful, how impressive this administration has been. But the sad news is, breaking news, is that there will be no evidence of how this administration has helped the American people. And so there will be a lot of puffery, but unlike what we tried to do was to say we're willing to listen uh, and to govern by listening and to know how to govern, I will expect that there will be a lot of words, but an absence of proof that this administration can govern uh, the nation that we are now today. Well, Congresswoman, let me ask you about this, because you have such a a deep level of experience in terms of the policy, especially as the deputy uh, chief whip for the Democratic Caucus in the House of Representatives. So when you look at the economic vision that uh, the nominee Biden is is putting forward, do you think he's going to be more progressive or more centrist in his approach of governing? Oriented. And what does that mean? Um, I don't think there is a litmus test for small businesses across America. That means they come in all regions and all political persuasions. This administration recognizes that small businesses are the economic engine of America. One of his proposals is to ensure that the federal government in a very large way does business with small businesses, making it easier to access, giving small businesses the ability to access credit, recognizing independent entrepreneurs and small contractors and sole proprietors. Uh, That is not a partisan issue. And then at the same time, I think uh, he will well recognize uh, that different regions need different responses. Joe Biden knows how to boost manufacturing, to really have it grow. Why does he know that? Because he was at the centerpiece of reforming or bringing back uh, the auto industry. And I was there in the United States Congress. So the proof really is in the evidence of Joe Biden's work. And I believe that he will have an economic policy that is both responsive and attractive to all of America. I want to come back to the economy and the domestic front in Congress in a second, but sticking with the campaign uh, just for uh, for a little bit longer here, Houston it has been impacted by uh, the U.S. and China trade relations in terms of uh, the, the president's policies in dealing with China, as well as Europe uh, to some extent. I'm curious, uh, what would a, a Biden administration mean on the economic trade front? As you know, your district so uh, very much impacted by whomever is the occupant of the White House on trade. Well, I can tell you this, um, we cannot do foreign policy 
or trade policy by throwing spears. I think that we worked very hard on the trade legislation that has not yet been passed, uh, dealing with Canada, United States, and Mexico. With Democrats heavily involved, uh, we spoke more to a balanced trade policy. I believe the Biden uh, presidency with Kamala Harris will not throw spears, but will stand firmly on the position that trade should always benefit uh, the United States, businesses and people, and working people. Uh, Joe Biden has been engaged in trade negotiations in the past, so the way we will lead, the way Joe Biden will lead, is that we will try to fix, if you will, to mend the broken China-United States relationship without China dominating our trade policies. We'll try to mend uh, the European-United States relationship uh, without Europe dominating uh, our economic policies, but we'll have a collaborative economic uh, roadmap to follow. Congresswoman, you uh, are on Homeland Security. You are the uh, sub committee chairwoman of cyber intelligence and, and as well. Uh, and there's been a lot of talk in recent uh, weeks, especially as it relates to China and intellectual property. Uh, the president has suggested through executive orders that uh, apps like TikTok should not be able to be run by China here in the United States. Is this a bipartisan issue? Is this a nonpartisan issue? Where uh, on the U.S.-China tech front are we in terms of coalitions in Congress? Well, I'm very glad to say as a member of that committee that we have been able to forge uh, bipartisan legislation that deals with cybersecurity. Um, I think that the idea of protecting the cyber network of the United States is one of the major domestic security issues, national security issues, and frankly, international issues. Uh, in order to, however, have a solution, again, uh, you just can't be unilateral in your efforts. And under this present administration, why we have been unsuccessful uh, in getting massive agreements, i.e. dropping out of the Iran agreement, is because it has all been unilateral. A Joe Biden presidency, a Kamala Harris vice presidency, will clearly be, uh, if you will, uh, engaged in bilateral efforts. And so once we do our work uh, in the national sphere of cybersecurity, protecting cybersecurity, I even introduced legislation uh, for um, a a major catastrophe and how the United States respond in its cyber network. But the point is, is that this new indication of the leadership of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris would be, we restore our international alliances around cybersecurity. Uh, we indicate to China that we will not have the intrusion uh, that they have been, uh, frankly, recklessly engaging in. And whether or not the ending of TikTok is the ultimate results here in the United States. As you well know, there are negotiations going on for the purchase of TikTok by a United States uh, company. I happen to support that. Uh, but in any event, we will not handle our cyber network, which is really international, as evidenced by the Russian intrusion into the elections in 2016. We will not do it unilaterally. This governor, governance, rather, Biden and Harris, will look to bilateral relationships on the cybersecurity front. And one final question I got to ask you about the, the prospects of more economic fiscal stimulus. Uh, the, the, what we're gathering is that there might be some type of skinny deal before the election and then afterwards another round of stimulus. Is that what you're hearing? Uh, and is the support there for that? You know, the economy is churned by the consumers of this nation. And that is your everyday mom and pop. That's your 
uh, person who is now struggling because they don't have $600 or the cash disbursement. Um, we are urging uh, leadership um, to uh, view uh, this as they have been doing. As you well know, Democrats passed this more than 100 days ago, the HEROES Act, uh, and Republicans, including those in the Senate, have absolutely refused to be concerned about mom and pop across America who are suffering. We are willing to sit down at the negotiating table. The president obviously is distracted by this week. That was my interview earlier today with Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. She is a Democrat from Houston. Coming up, more policy and politics with an all-star, all-star panel. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And remember, folks, you can catch all of our cross-platform coverage this evening, uh, led by David Weston. I'll be at the White House. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Stocks climb to an all-time high amid treatment hope. Plus... Get ready. It's the Virtual Republican National Convention, a complete preview on all fronts. Coming up, we're going to talk all about stocks climbing to an all-time high amid treatment hope. I'll give you the complete markets wrap. But we begin tonight with the first night of the Virtual Republican National Convention. Justin Sink is on the line. He is a Bloomberg White House reporter. Justin, how are you? Hey, doing well. How about you? Well, you know, I'm doing all right, considering that the Sixers got it completely <laughs> handed to them for nothing against the Boston Celtics. I'm just Celtics. all in on the Flyers. I've given up. I know. At this point, it's like, come on, Gritty, give us a win. Yeah. Give us a yeah. win. Okay, night one of the virtual Republican National Convention. T- Tim Scott speaking. What else can we expect uh, from tonight? And what are you hearing? We heard from Tim Mertzall earlier that they're saying it's going to be a much more optimistic convention, that they're going to talk foreign policy and draw a contrast on China. What else do you think we're going to hear from the people that you talked to, Justin Sink? Yeah, I mean, so you've mentioned what Tim Murtaugh had to say, and and I do think that that is what Republicans are saying we're going to hear uh, tonight. But, uh, you know, President Trump headed down to North Carolina today to sort of formally accept the nomination. He did a brief, unexpected uh, kind of swing through the convention site in Charlotte. And what we heard out of him was a lot of the same kind of tenor and tone that we've heard from the White House for the last few months. So, a lot of talk about how Democrats are trying to steal away this election. Not a lot of talk about, you know, uh, what his policy priorities are going forward. So, um, you know, tonight we're going to hear from people like Nikki Haley, who's a, a potential president, presidential aspirant of her own. Um, Tim Scott, I think, is going to talk um, as the only black Republican in the, in the U.S. Senate, going to talk probably about um, not only opportunity zone projects and, and things that he's worked with President Trump on, but perhaps even go after Joe Biden for some of his gaffes on, on racially charged issues. Uh, but we're also going to hear from people um, like Donald Trump Jr., the president's son, who really has uh, 
made his, uh, I don't know, become a personality in the last uh, few years as a really harsh critic of Democrats. He kind of has a stand-up act that he'll do before before the president's rallies at times. And so, uh, you know, while they say that this is going to be kind of a, a focus on people who have benefited from the president's policies, it's hard not to imagine that it's not going to be a lot of red meat for, for the president's um I think most ardent supporters. I think it's real. The three names that you just picked out. I think Nikki Haley, uh, obviously someone who does have presidential aspirations. Tim Scott. I think you should also we should also note he could he gets likely named as uh, someone with a potential twenty twenty four running record. And then Don Jr., who's going to be on tomorrow. But I think you know he Hills play to the base. So you've got this this sense of diversity, and then the the red meat <laughs> the red meat. So yeah. it's a really interesting. Mix. I'm struck just, you know, as, a, as an observer of all of this, just to see whether or not they make any changes stylistically. Have you heard? I mean, and I guess we're going to have to wait a couple more hours. But have you heard about how stylistically it might look different than what the Dems did last week? Yeah. So I think there was a lot of criticism um, from uh, the president and some of his allies that, that the Democratic Convention felt overproduced, that there wasn't sort of live spontaneity, spontaneity to it. So we know Republicans have taken over the Mellon Arena or Mellon Auditorium that's uh, in downtown Washington. So I think we're going to see a, uh, a little less of the sort of prepackaged bits that we saw in the Democratic Convention and more um, of kind of speakers going live. I think we also expect to hear from the president each night. So uh, tonight, I'm sure there will be some way to sort of uh, integrate him into into the proceedings. Um, and uh, we know from talking to them that, that the president has really enjoyed moments in his presidency where he's able to sort of surprise people. He, You know, the classic reality television show uh, reveal that he really loves. And so, you know, lots of people involved in the convention keep saying that, that we should expect some surprises and expect some spontaneity. That cuts both ways, though. I mean, Democrats were able to really effectively sort of make their case for Joe Biden, make their case against Donald Trump over four nights, even if it seems to kind of drag at, at points, especially early on. Um, but with Republicans kind of ripping up the schedule constantly, making a lot of changes, there's a lot of room for potential errors, moments that, that seem off message or um, create gaffes or things that they're going to have to respond to down the road. So that's going to be the challenge is, is to inject that spontaneity and, and keep people uh, interested in the proceedings without running into some trouble. Yeah, and, and, and coming up, we'll have some more economic reaction, but to pivot now to, to domestic uh, politics and the virus, I'm reading from the Bloomberg Terminal, Justin Sink, a, a Bloomberg uh, White House reporter. Market sentiment was supported by news over the weekend that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is working to expand access to a virus treatment involving blood plasma from recovered patients. Separately, the Financial Times reported that the Trump administration is considering whether to bypass regulatory standards to accelerate an experimental vaccine. So what has the response been from uh, the president's announcement yesterday uh, that uh, uh, plasma is going to be more readily available? And, and, you know, yes, there's debate in the medical community about how effective of a treatment this is, but I think everyone agrees it's another tool in the medical community's disposal now for them to utilize for for, uh, treatment for COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned that markets are obviously really excited by this. And I think the president's allies would say, yeah, this is another example of us pushing 
the FDA really hard to start getting treatments into people's hands. I think that this has the potential, especially if used early and used by people um, who are younger and don't necessarily have some of the underlying conditions, that this can prevent uh, a bad COVID case from getting worse. Now, you you did kind of suggest um, that there is some concern within the medical community, and I think that it's important to acknowledge that, especially as we start talking about vaccines, because that's going to be a, an even bigger uh, example of this issue. But but on plasma itself, there's worry both that the treatment might not be as effective as the president sort of billed it as, could give people false hope, could have consequences that, that are not yet known. And there's especially worry that by doing this emergency use authorization, it's going to screw with the way that they do sort of um, medical trials where people get placebos, people get the actual treatment, they can look at, at the consequences over time and uh, weigh it against the, the possible side effects. If there's difficult difficulty recruiting people to those studies, it may be longer for us to find out how effective the treatment actually is. And, and that's always the balance that I think doctors and, and medical professionals face, right? You want to get the science good on something, but you also don't want to deprive people of the treatment there. And and that's a debate that, that is certainly happening with the plasma and could potentially happen if there's political pressure uh, from the Trump administration to, to push forward with the vaccine. Just quickly, what are the chances that the that Congress gets to a deal this week during the Republican National Convention? That'd be a pretty big deal. And even if they don't get it this week and they get it next week, it's still, you know, another feather in the president's cap. Yeah, I think it's going to be hard for a deal to come together this week because it doesn't sound like the White House and, and the House Democrats are even really negotiating at, at this point. But I do think that there's a sense that there's going to be political pressure, especially um, as some of the president's uh, unilateral efforts don't bear as much fruit as they hope to get everybody back to the negotiating table. Democrats are feeling that pressure, too, over the post office yeah. and, and try to get a deal. Brett Brown's done with the Sixers. Yeah, it's it's time to turn the page. <laughs> Last word there from Justin Sink. It's time to turn the page, Sixers. The Brett Brown era needs to end. I'm Kevin Cerilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. So I have a confession. First of all, my name is Kevin Cerulli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. So I'm watching the Sixers yesterday, and I, I really didn't get into... The, I don't even know if you can call this a season. I still It doesn't feel like a season, but I, you know, I listen to a lot of sports. And, and I turns on the game yesterday. I'm like, they're down 3-0. Three and, three and oh. Come on, Kev. Do it for... 
the sixth grade version of yourself and just root for Allen Iverson against the Lakers. But so I'm watching the game and did has anyone seen these games? They don't have fans in the stands. They've got like it reminds me of that computer game I used to play when I was a kid, like backyard basketball. Did anyone play that? And it and it's it's literally avatars. I, it was so weird. I, I, I and then I, I was trying to figure out if they're actually playing the game without fans in the stands is because they had a crowd soundtrack and but I'm thinking to myself, is it quiet in the stadium? I got real in my head about it. And the Sixers lost. All right, enough basketball talk. And uh, let's welcome the panel. Bill McGinley, principal at the Vogel hey. Group. Former White House cabinet. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming on, Bill. It's great to have you back. He's a former White House cabinet secretary and former deputy counsel at the Republican National Committee. And Fernando Espuelas, he is the CEO of a new Hispanic super PAC, American Latinos United. Fernando, this is your first time on the program. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Kevin. Thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be with you. You are also a Univision radio host in Los Angeles, which is the largest market for Spanish language media. So I very much appreciate you uh, making some time for me. We've got a lot to talk about. Bill, what are you going to be looking for uh, tonight at, at the convention from Nikki Haley, from Tim Scott, and of course from Don Jr.? So, I really got to tell you, Kevin, I'm focusing on the average Americans that are going to be speaking at this convention tonight. Like any national convention, they're going to have kind of the political all-stars, the elected officials, the former administration officials, uh, family members come on and, and, and talk about their relationship with the president and how they worked with them. But some of the people that I'm really going to be looking at are going to be Amy Johnson Ford, who is a nurse. Um, who's going to talk about her COVID experience. Uh, Natalie Harp, um, cancer survivor, um, who's going to talk about the Right to Try Act, which was legislation that allowed uh, experimental drugs to be um, used for terminally ill patients. Uh, for Kim Classic, who is the uh, candidate uh, in the Maryland's uh, 7th Congressional District, she's the one who put together um, that uh, social media video that went viral um, about policies to help inner cities. Uh, Andrew Pollack, who I think is uh, really uh, somebody who has suffered a lot of tragedy. He's a Parkland father. Um, he lost his daughter in that tragic uh, shooting, and he, he's going to be talking about uh, school safety and what the administration has done there. And then Tanya Wanneris, um, who is a small business owner um, who received a PPP loan. So I think, you know, by selecting a lot of these speakers, um, average Americans talking about the administration's policies in the immediate uh, and material impact that they've had on their lives and some of the issues that they face, um, it's going to. I think you're going to see a pretty compelling narrative come out of it. Um, in addition to the all stars that that you mentioned, Nikki Haley uh, can obviously Ambassador Haley can talk about uh, foreign policy and and what happened at the UN, but also her travels across the globe uh, and how the president's foreign policy um, really kind of put the American people first and and tried to really help. Uh, with some of the struggles that we have abroad. Uh, Don Jr. obviously has been extremely involved in the campaign and is a terrific surrogate for his father. 
uh, is going to talk passionately about He'll do the red meat uh, act. The agenda that his father brings. Yeah, exactly. I think he is going to be uh, the red media, media yeah. act. And, and, and Senator Scott, as you mentioned at the top, I think is somebody who I really can't wait to hear from. Well, um, he, he inherits the Jack Senator. Kemp, the Jack Kemp economic model of that, uh, you know, the opportunity zones and whatnot, which is really a policy right from Jack Kemp's uh, economic model. Fernando Espelas, I want to bring you into this conversation because last week, I mean, you hear what Bill's talking about, and it's very much counter-narrative to the uh, story and the and the push that the Democrats put out last week. And so I, I guess from your perspective on night one of this opening bid for the Republican National Convention, what are you going to be looking for as some of those key themes, especially for minority groups, whether they're Hispanics, whether they're African-Americans uh, or, or other underserved groups in, in mm-hmm. the United States? I think that uh, beyond any one speech, the uh, uninvited guest at this convention is the pandemic. Um, we know yeah. from polling that this is the number one concern for a, a, a super majority of Americans with both parties and no party alike. And um, I think people are going to, uh, if they're going to tune in, uh, and I'm talking about people who may be persuaded to vote for uh, President Trump, uh, I think they want to hear what this administration is going to do about this. What, what are their actual plans? I think uh, the big risk for uh, the Republicans during this week is that they essentially uh, avoid the subject, right, that they are so determined to follow through on uh, Trump's cues that this is over and, you know, just uh, people will die and it is what it is. Um, I think that's a real uh, communications risk here. I don't think there is any number of really brilliant speeches that can overcome that major issue. And on a secondary plane, although very close to to the pandemic, is the economy. Um, I'm assuming there's going to be millions of people who want to hear how uh, the president managed the economy before the pandemic. But I'm assuming that anybody who's uh, persuadable at this point wants to hear a cogent, um, uh, coherent plan for rebuilding the economy. And based on some of the communications that were released by the uh, convention today, uh, it it seems very much focused on slogans at this point. Obviously, they have the opportunity to fill in with some real content. But uh, again, I think just claiming that it was the best economy in the history of the U.S., um, you know, might be good for the believers, but I don't think it's going to be very persuasive unless they add to that with some real uh, real plans here to to where people can see uh, the future. And yet, even even despite that, you look at this Wall Street Journal NBC News poll that was that popped over the weekend, and it it has. I want to make sure I get the numbers the numbers correct. I mean, it, Biden's leading Trump fifty percent to uh, to forty one percent nationally, which really doesn't matter. I mean, it's the swing states, which mm-hmm. in which there's they're in striking distance. But he Trump leads Trump leads. Uh, by 10 points on who would best handle the economy. Trump scores 10 percentage points higher than Biden on which candidate best handles the economy. Coming up, we're going to talk more about that with our panel. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And that is my song of the summer, Good Times Roll by Jimmy Allen featuring Nelly. Uh, joining us on the panel to talk all things uh, policy and politics. And we're going to talk now about mail-in voting because Louis DeJoy was on Capitol Hill. He, of course, heads up the U.S. Postal Service and was testifying, cap- concluding uh, a second day of, of Hill testimony virtually, of course. Friday, he was in the Senate, and uh, and Monday, uh, he was in the House. Nancy Lyons telling me in the group chat that uh, the Sixers head coach, Brown, is out, is done. Brett Brown is gone. All right, so back to this, though. Louis DeJoy was on Capitol Hill. Fernando Espuela, CEO of a new Hispanic super PAC, American Latinos United. He is also a Univision radio host in Los Angeles, the largest market for Spanish language media. And Bill McGinley, principal at the Vogel Group, former White House cabinet secretary and former deputy counsel at the Republican National Committee. Fernando, how important of an issue is mail-in voting? And did we learn anything that's a game changer from Louis DeJoy, Louis DeJoy? Well, I think it's very big for a very practical reason, which is that we're in the midst of a pandemic and uh, uh, giving people an ability to vote uh, in without insp- exposing themselves to a virus seems to be a, no, a bit of a no-brainer when you add to it that there are several states, both uh, Republican-leaning and Democratic-leaning states, that have used mail-in voting for a long, long time with complete security and, and uh, high levels of, of trust. Um, this is, a, of course, an invented issue by Trump, uh, both uh, his own paranoia that if everyone gets a chance to vote, they'll vote against him, which I think is a supremely weak uh, point of view. And he did say a, a few months ago that if everyone got a chance to vote, Republicans would never be elected again. So he, once again, he's, he's telling us exactly what he thinks. So for him to have created this uh, artifice of, of a crisis, uh, really, I think, is bouncing, uh, um, you know, boomerang, boomeranging back at him, uh, because it turns out that there is no partisan bent to the post office. Uh, it's really about utility. And it, and something which I was not aware of before this thing blew up is that the post office is very popular uh, among Americans. So he's attacking an institution. <laughs> Fernando, I feel like you just I feel like you just kind of gave your I feel like it's not popular amongst Fernando Asuelas. No, 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 no. I, I had no no actual consciousness of it. You know, it worked. And so I never thought <laughs> twice about it. I didn't realize that it was so that it actually had a fan uh, club and it was made up of uh, the vast majority of Americans. Wow. But See, I do I'm an old that, soul. Uh, <laughs> I use the post office. I got to cut in here. I got to defend the post office. I use it for everything. I write my thank you notes. You know, I do all that. I do. Uh, I'm pro mail. I'm, I'm pro <laughs> mail. I'm totally pro mail. I just was not aware how pro mail everyone else around me All was. Right. But uh, pro mail. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but but no, I mean, I, I do think that uh, what was interesting about the Postmaster General's uh, testimony is his claim that they will actually fulfill their uh, responsibilities by processing ballots uh, very quickly to make sure the election works out. Now, whether he does that or not, whether he, he's just, uh, frankly, making it up because he's under such tremendous pressure remains to be seen. But certainly, I think this, this was a very weird kind of paranoid thing that Trump kind of just uh, you know burped up at one point, and it's become a, a real problem for him politically, certainly. Well, I think, you know, Bill, when I was watching some of the, the, the rhetoric coming from the left and the right, I think both sides have really utilized this issue as, an, as a way to, uh, to drum up support 
for their bases. You've got, you know, whether it's former President Obama and, and former First Lady Obama uh, speaking last week at the convention saying, you know, wait in line, stay in line or get your ballots in early. Or you have the president today speaking at the Republican National Convention already briefly, uh, officially after he was named, of course, the uh, the nominee again, saying, you know, be careful. We got to we got to be on the lookout for no funny business. Both sides are really using this to speak to their respective bases, Bill. Yeah, I agree with that. And um, what a surprise in 2020 that a nonpartisan institution becomes a partisan punching bag uh, <laughs> from both sides. Um, you know, a couple of things about the mail-in uh, issue and the post office. Number one, the post office does have funds, right? You know, the Democrats are saying it needs an additional $25 billion, but every report that I've read says that they've got about $10 billion um, that they can access um, to assist with operations. Um, if necessary. Um, the use of the U.S. Post Office from other data that I've been reading has been declining over the years because people increasingly send uh, messages electronically and uh, photographs and everything else. They're not mailing it. And in fact, during the Obama administration, you know, in some of their budgets, um, there was talk about the need for reform that, you know, uh, UPS and FedEx were doing fine. It was the post office uh, that was struggling, I think, was the quote that uh, President Obama got caught in in a, in a candid moment. And in fact, some of their budgets that they submitted, um, they wanted to scale back the post office from a six day delivery system to a five day delivery system by eliminating Saturday. Um, they also talked about no more to the door delivery of uh, post of, of mail, but you know instead trying to do it to some sort of central location where people can come and pick it up. So there have been issues with the post office, but the post office has shown a lot of resiliency during the pandemic. Um, and in fact, I, I believe the postmaster general when he says that they're going to be able to do it. Uh, the proof is in the pudding. We'll see how it goes. But um, I think in his testimony, he did say that they were going to be able to handle the surge in both uh, mail-in ballots for those states that do that, but also the absentee ballots. You know, I was um, one point that. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was no, going to say was, over the weekend, just speaking, just to catch everybody up to speed. Uh, and Eric Wasson uh, was working for us over the weekend. He's a Bloomberg congressional reporter. The House voted on that $25 billion funding bill, uh, and it passed with every Democrat voting for it. It also passed with 26 Republicans. 26 Republicans vote across the aisle uh, and voted for this $25 billion uh, funding for the Postal Service. $10 billion is what the Senate version of the bill had called for. But these are some pretty conservative members. Republican John Katko, uh, he is an endangered New York incumbent Republican. He said in a statement why he voted for it, quote, slowing of these services would have a disastrous impact on the lives of many Americans. Now is not the time to jeopardize USPS operations or delay services. O Oklahoma Representative Tom Cole, uh, he said that the he voted for it, a Republican. He said the complete freezing of service changes at the January 2020 level would, quote, ultimately make it harder to improve operations and ensure that the Postal Service is set on a ready course for the future. And then there's Will Hurd. Congressman Will Hurd is retiring, and he voted for it and said that the, the Postal Service is vital. They provide prescriptions. I mean, and we haven't really talked about that, is, is about how many Americans, millions of Americans, rely on the Postal Service for, for prescriptions. But uh, according but to Hurd's statement... 
No, wait, let me finish. Oh, oh. They also provide absentee Sorry. ballots, a method to pay bills, and so much more to the American people. And they're doing this throughout the pandemic. They are essential. And like always, I will continue to support them. That's from Congressman Hurd. Whoever I interrupted, go ahead. Come in here. Uh, I'm so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to do that. No, no worries. Uh, here's, here, here, here's the issue, though, right? Uh, when you have a president who uh, pronounces out loud that if there's universal mail-in voting, Republicans will never win again, whatever happens after that is a function of that. I mean, the idea that the president of the United States uh, says these things out loud and then that the people that work for him don't actually implement it is, is a ludicrous idea. So even if there is a need to reform the post office, there probably is. It does not mean that it has to be happen just before an election, after the president has articulated his fear that people voting is bad for him and for Republicans. So, so what we have here is a presidency that, unfortunately, is so based on Trump's personality beyond any policy consideration. Um, that is so driven by his id, so driven by these tweets, which, you know, the tweets are just kind of a reflection of what's happening in his brain at any one moment. Um, and, and so that, there, you, there you have a, a situation which is very hard for Americans to believe that what, you know, whatever is being done at the post office actually has a good purpose as opposed to trying to make sure that the president doesn't lose. All right, panel, um, panel hold like on. Can we, can yeah. panel, no, we got to jump. But coming up next, we're going to talk more, and you guys can tell me what's on your radar because i got to go to break. But, uh, but, but hold it right there. And the one thing that I would just add to this is states run elections. So I think we're all conflating the issue that the Postal Service has to stamp the elections. Well, actually, the rules for governing mail-in voting – come from the states and that gets decided as in the case of washington state it took 20 years 20 years for a liberal state like washington to get to the point of of, of mail-in voting i'm kevin cerilli much more coming up next you're listening to bloomberg 99.1 You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And now it's time for my favorite part of the program, which is what is on your radar? What is on the panel's radar? Fernando Espuelas, the CEO of a new Hispanic super PAC called American Latinos United. He is a Univision radio host in L.A., which, you know, I, I'm going to say it. I thought I was going to be spending a lot of time in California when this year began. It's the largest market for Spanish language media. Uh, and Bill McGinley, principal at the Vogel Group. He is the former White House cabinet secretary and former deputy counsel at the Republican National Committee. I'm still California dreaming, Fernando. Are you out in L.A.? <laughs> I'm actually in D.C., uh, moved oh. my show out here uh, some years ago. Uh, but, yeah, uh, L.A. is nice. It's very nice. I've got family out there, and um, I was just talking to my yeah. cousin yesterday, and I was like, oh, he's like, yeah, it's hot, and, and I'm on going to the beach with the kids. I'm like, I wish I was at the beach. Uh, Fernando, what is on your radar? Yeah. Well, um, you know, you asked up at the beginning of the program how minority uh, voters were thinking about things. Uh, well, there's something that gets almost zero coverage, which is that there, if there's one group of, of voters in the United States that Trump has been able to maintain and in some surveys grow his support are actually Latinos. Um, so um, 
the reality of, of Hispanic support for Trump is something that is very shocking to Democrats, but it's real and constant and does not yeah. seem to move around very much. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. There are cultural uh, reasons. There are social issues around it. Catholicism. Uh, yeah, all sorts of things that are related to right to life, to gay rights, and of course, um, depending on which group of Hispanics we're talking about, issues like Castro and, and Maduro and so forth. And yep. so that's really a fascinating dynamic of, of someone who constantly insults Hispanic people, being able to maintain roughly a third of Hispanic support, uh, over the over, of, a third of the overall Hispanic electorate, uh, continue to support the president. Well, what do you think, what, what rate what percentage rate do you think that uh, they they get to um, in terms of or what rate do Republicans need in order to outperform yeah. the expectation? I guess is the better question. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So uh, if you look at the last four elections or five elections, you see that uh, Republicans consistently received somewhere from the bottom 24 percent, which was Romney, all the way up to, and there are different uh, numbers related to how, uh, how well President Bush did in 2004, but people generally think around 40 percent. Uh, but most of, of, uh, of Hispanic support for Republicans in presidential elections is around 30, uh, 28, 30, you know, 32, 33. And uh, President Trump received in the exit polls, at least in 2016, uh, roughly 30 percent. In the latest NBC poll, he's clocking in at 31 percent. And th that's like the third version of that poll that he's actually doing better than outperforming his exit polls. So I think this is wow. just the, the reality that Democrats absolutely do not want to face. Uh, they live in a fantasy world in which uh, Hispanics have no options except to vote for uh, Democrats. And they're constantly uh, disappointed that they actually don't get more votes from uh, our community. I find that remarkable. And do you think, because it, yeah. it's even, and it goes back to the Wall Street Journal poll, because and you look at the crosstabs on these polls, and I, I said it to my friend Tammy today earlier at lunch, I said, I think this race is a lot closer than people think. Because you've got a majority uh, of 58% in the Wall Street Journal NBC News survey disapprove of Trump's pandemic management but he's still leading on the issue of the economy. And so that's, it's like there are these, two, and, and that's still the number yeah. one issue. The number one issue that people are voting on, according to the polls, is the economy, not the pandemic. And so that's why it's like there's these very competing data flows that are out there. And it's going to be really interesting to see, Fernando. I'll give you the last word. I know you have to go, so I want to give you a final word before, uh, before, I, before you jump off. All right. Thank you. And yeah, I have to go do my show. But but uh, very quickly, you know, when we look, we, we would look at 2016 um, and we know that, that Trump won Michigan, for example, by around 10,000 votes. What never gets reported is he received 90,000 Hispanic votes. So said in a different way, if Democrats actually ever become proficient at uh, persuading uh, Hispanics, which they haven't, um, you know, they could actually win uh, even close elections in the Electoral College. And short of doing that, unfortunately uh, for them, uh, they're going to continue to underperform and disappoint uh, the rest of the country. Fernando Espelos, go on air, go do your thing. CEO of the new Hispanic you, Super sir. PAC, anytime. American Latinos United, a Univision radio host in LA, the largest market for Spanish language and media. Bill, all right, tell me, what is on your radar, Bill McGinley? Uh, college and high school athletics. Yes, um, I could talk about of, this. I could do five shows on this, but no one lets me. Yeah. Go ahead. And I got to tell you, as a parent of two high school-aged kids, um, both schools have canceled uh, sports for the fall. 
And the proposal is, assuming that the virus is under control and it can be safely done, to try and cram three seasons into the spring semester, um, which if that's the case, I hope they can pull it off. Um, schools are facing a real challenge uh, because a lot of them are going to be hybrid uh, beginning. My son's already started high school. My daughter's going to begin in a week. Um, but athletics is a big part of their school experience, uh, not only for socialization, but, of course, the important activity of physical exercise. And so I think it's a real issue that the school districts are going to have to to grapple with. And, of course, on the college level, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten um, have canceled their football seasons, which just broke my heart. Uh, but it sounds like SEC, ACC, and Big 12 may continue. So it's a real asterisk year for fall athletics. Okay, you ready for what's happening in Pennsylvania, where Governor Tom Wolf, the Pennsylvania Democrat governor, Tom Wolf, he recommended that the PIAA, which is the Pennsylvania the high school sports for all the public schools in, uh, in Pennsylvania, he recommended that they not play any fall sports. This is in Pennsylvania, Governor Tom Wolf. Uh, and the PIAA, they're not listening to him. They voted last Friday to start fall sports practices today. Today, the 24th? Yeah, today's th- today with a potential first day of the season on Friday, September 11th. So then in a statement responding to this, they said, uh, the Wolf administration says, while the administration expressed broad concern with the PIAA's plans, including the request for liability protections, we've made it clear to them since July that this decision should be made by the PIAA in concert with local school districts. So they're going against the governor. So even in a, a battleground state, like I'm telling you, it's all political. It's uh, even in a state like Pennsylvania, it's political. It's political, political, but it's also data driven, right? I mean, a lot of these school districts need to be looking at the data, the infection data, uh, what's working, what's not working. And if they can make it work, I think most parents would agree. Let's get the kids back to school uh, if it's going to be safe. Yeah, but 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 then we'll you have the then happen. you have this question. Okay, so they're going to play sports, but they're not allowed to go to school, or they're, they're, they can only do virtual learning. I mean, it's just there's I, all of these questions. If you're going to you know? have sports, if you're going to have sports, you at least have to have a hybrid model, I think, for the classroom. Oh, that, um, yeah, it's it's remarkable. You know what I mean? Like you can't have one without the other. It needs to be all in, or it needs it, it can't be bifurcated like that. All right, what's on my Um, radar is the U.S. stocks rose to record highs and bonds fell on signs that the Trump administration may fast-track vaccines and treatments for the coronavirus. The S&P 500 notched another all-time high as optimism mounted that the virus won't hamper growth. The Nasdaq also closed a record for a second consecutive session. Companies that benefit um, from a more robust uh, economic restart led the gains. So that's on the economic front. And then I, the, the, the story I'm obsessed with, I'm going to do two, uh, is the Zoom crash. The Zoom outage Monday ground some work meetings and online learning to a halt on the first day of class for many U.S. students, highlighting the vulnerabilities of virtual school during the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic. Bill? Thanks for spending the hour with me, my friend, principal at the Vogel Group. He is, of course, the former deputy counsel at the Republican National Committee and the former White House Cabinet Secretary. I'm headed to the White House. Night one of the RNC kicks off tonight. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Don Jr. tomorrow. I'm headed to the Trump Hotel to interview Don Jr. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.